you know, in my dad's day, it was a very simple, it was a backyard sort of menagerie. He never intended it to become a public place like it is today. He just thought, well, it's my backyard, but people kept coming and knocking on the door. Can we come see the animals? Can we see it? <laughs> and so, you know, when he finally formed it as a nonprofit, he said, good, I'll move it off my property right next door and we'll set it all up. It's sort of like Field of Dreams. You build it and they will come. People have come and come and come. There's a place in Southern Oregon filled with gorgeous natural beauty, friendly yet independent people, and a mild, comfortable climate. That place is called Grants Pass. These are the stories of the people that live and work in Josephine County. These are the movers and shakers that make this place the best. This is Grants Pass VIP. Dave Sidden has been the director of Wildlife Images for the past 24 years. It all began when he was growing up in L.A. with his father, the original conservationist, in the wildlife film documentary business. He had a deep commitment to saving wildlife and its habitat long before most people had any idea there was any need for concern. Many of Dave's teenage years were spent working as a cameraman on expeditions and commercial shoots, as well as training wild animals for many of his father's film projects. It's as though Dave's future was to some extent predetermined. In the early 70s, he went to work at SeaWorld as an aviculturalist and eventually a killer whale trainer. For eight years, he performed in the shows and tried his best to stay one step ahead of the whales. In 1985, he joined the staff of Oregon Zoo and spent nearly 12 years there as program coordinator. In 1996, his father found out he had terminal cancer. He asked Dave if he would take over his company to ensure that his dream didn't die with him. In addition to heading up wildlife images, Dave has worked as a consultant for many zoological institutions in Japan, China, New Zealand, the Canary Islands, as well as around the United States. He's worked on several expeditions, including trips to Antarctica and South Georgia Island, where they collected emperor and king penguins to start captive breeding programs in several facilities worldwide. Dave Sidden, welcome to Grants Pass VIP. Well, thanks. Glad to be here. <laughs> so, how did you end up here in Grants Pass? Or how'd your father, how'd your family end up here originally? It was more by accident than by plan. Uh, my father got tired of the rat race in Los Angeles. I realized in the business he was in, he could do it pretty much anywhere and didn't have to be confined to the city streets down there. He grew up in Burbank, so he was familiar with that, spent all of his life in the valley. And at one time, he, uh, one of my mother's brothers, my uncle, came up to Grants Pass on a trip and bought this piece of property, 17 acres, on the Rogue River. And he thought, I'm going to build a trailer park up there. I've got this great idea. So anyway, his plans fell through. He happened to be down at mom and dad's house in L.A. and showed him a couple of pictures, Polaroid pictures of the property. And said, I don't know, I'm just going to have to sell this land. And they said, we'll take it. And sight unseen, just seeing these little Polaroid pictures. Oh, wow. They said, well, we want the property. They bought the property and moved up here lock, stock, and barrel. And, of course, in the process, Dad had always had wild animals. In our backyard, I thought it was just a normal thing. <laughs> but you looked out of our family room window, and there you looked into an eagle area where we had golden eagles who were on loan from the L.A. Zoo in a breeding program. And we always had wild animals of all sorts and other, being in the wild animal business and movies and all that. So we had, you know, lots of friends that were involved in the movie business and us involved in the movie business. So uh, when he decided to move to Grants Pass, of course, with eagles with you and everything, you have to get permits to go across state lines or you mm. violate something called the Lacey Act. Huh. So he got his permits to come into Oregon with the eagles and other animals. 
And when he did, of course, these permits come across the desk of the local sheriff and the state police and the uh, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife and all these other agencies. And they said, well, this is sort of strange. Let's go check this guy out. So they came out and met my father. And he was one of these guys, bigger than life, a big booming voice, and a thousand stories. <laughs> um, so they said, boy, next time we get an injured animal, let's just haul it out to that guy. Because up until that time, the animals were just dispatched. Anything that was found injured was just dispatched, and that was the end of it. Nobody took care of them. Um, started off innocently enough with a you know, nest of jays, and then maybe a baby raccoon, and a this and a that. And this was like in 1974. And um, by 1981, this thing had become such an unwieldy beast, he decided, I, I need to form a nonprofit uh, because I can't support this any longer. It's getting too much larger. And he hated the idea of being having a nonprofit because he was an autocrat. And the idea of having to take directions from a board of directors just horrified him. He hated that idea. <laughs> um, so anyway, he did it anyway, um, jumped in, and in 1981 formed what is now today called Wildlife Images. Wow, that's fabulous. So for as long as you can remember, you've been around animals, right? Mm -hmm. Where did your dad pick it up? How did that all start? His father was a really interesting man, um, very quiet, unassuming guy. He worked in the skunk works at Lockheed, so oh. in there on all the secret projects. He worked on the U-2, he worked on a P-38, he worked on the Constellation, he worked on the SR-71. All these amazing airplanes, but he couldn't talk about what he was working on. He was, and he was one of these guys that wouldn't talk no matter what. <laughs> but his hobby and his passion was aviculture. He had birds in the backyard. He was raising parakeets, and he raised finch and quail. and All these, I remember going in their backyard in Burbank, and all these beautiful facilities there with all these birds, hundreds and hundreds of birds, and he knew every one of them and how to raise them and how to take care of them and all that. So my dad grew up in an atmosphere like that, and he told me stories that when he was a boy in Burbank, he could get on his bicycle, he could ride to a condor nest in just a, you know, a little while. He had red-tailed hawks nesting in the backyard, he can go out and catch little horned toads in the backyard. All this stuff was right in, in Burbank. And um, so he, at one point, got a dove from his father that was not doing really well. So he nursed it back to health and named it Rudy, I think it was. And Rudy used to ride on his shoulder wherever my father went anywhere, on his bicycle or walking <laughs> in town or everything. A newspaper guy happened to see it and deemed him the bird boy of Burbank and did a newspaper article on him. And it just sort of, the rest of his life, it just seemed like, okay, birds are always part of his life. He always had a fascination with birds and animals of all sort. And he was always talking about conservation for as long as I can remember. And we had friends that were in Hollywood, you know, Eddie Albert, was, mm -hmm. who used to star in Green Acres, was a close friend of the family. And he was really into conservation, organic foods and all mm -hmm. this sort of thing too. And so dad had a network of people he always dealt with that nobody really knew much about this idea of, you know, being a good steward in the environment. It was the late 60s, nobody cared about it. Um, but my father did, and he was passionate about it. So he brought his passion to Oregon. Wow, fabulous. So. What do you do here? What, what's your day consist of? <laughs> I worry uh, <laughs> a lot. Um, my job is uh, really tough. You know, I'm sort of the captain of the ship, as you, know, as you would, so I have to kind of coordinate everything else. Mostly what I do is uh, policy and revenue and that sort of thing. I have to generate the money somewhere to mm. keep this thing afloat which is getting tougher and tougher and tougher. Uh, grants are harder to get than they've ever been. Mm. Donations are, you know, a 
donations represent people's surplus revenue or money. There isn't that much surplus money out there right mm-hmm. now. The economy is really, really tight. Um, you know, then we do some grants, and then uh, also I have to, you know, look over paying all the bills, doing all that sort of thing to keep this afloat. We have a staff of 23, 24 people. Um, we have to all feed all the animals. And then, of course, mm-hmm. we have all the other things, you know, insurance and gasoline and uh, payroll, our biggest thing. So I kind of oversee all of those sort of things, all the permits. Wow. The permits, we have five different regulatory agencies that are looking over us all the time. Mm. And sometimes these regulatory agencies don't even agree. So keeping up with the permits is almost a full-time job for somebody now. Yeah. And um, so being in compliance and then all the safety and all the other things we have to worry about in a, a nonprofit. It's become, you know, in my dad's day, it was a very simple, it was a backyard sort of menagerie. He never intended it to become a public place like it is today. He just thought, wow, it's my backyard, but people kept coming and knocking on the door. Can we come see the animals? Can we see it? <laughs> and so, you know, when he finally formed it as a nonprofit, he said, good, I'll move it off my property right next door and we'll set it all up. It's sort of like Field of Dreams. You build it and they will come. People have come and come and come. And, and you know, lately we've faced a lot of hardships. We've had the fires and smoke, yeah. which people don't want to come out here when it's all smoky and gross. This year we had fires on all four sides of us. So no matter which way the wind blew, we're in, inundated with smoke. And then we've had winter storms, these really weird storms, wet, heavy snows that uh, knocked down a bunch of trees and wiped out some of our buildings and vehicles and things like that. So we've had storm damage for a couple of years. We've had, um, you know, just seems like it's been one thing after another. It's like we really would love to have a couple of really good seasons to be able to get ahead of things, but it's been very, very tight. So raising the money is the toughest part of my job. Absolutely. If people did come out here, what would they see? What would their experience be like? Well, in a perfect world, what we've recreated now is a situation where they get to actually engage with the animals. The animals typically are in exhibits as as good as we can produce to make them feel like it's a nice natural environment and everything. But again, they're exhibits. So we're trying to break that boundary because people care about animals if they can involve all their senses with the animals, as many as you can. So we've created a situation where they might be encountering wolves out for a walk or a raptor, like an eagle or an owl or a hawk will come out and do a visit with the people, maybe the reptiles during the summertime um, and other animals that we have that are socialized for humans. These aren't the rehabilitation candidates. These are animals that are permanent residents here, our ambassadors that uh, (laughs) interact with skunks sometimes. Uh, We'll take our badger out for a walk on occasion, but some of those animals are a little sensitive because of the COVID thing now. The mustelids are susceptible to COVID. Oh, so we wow. have to even separate people from things like the badgers and the weasels and mm. the things like that that we have. So we have to be very careful because of that. It's caused a lot more of um, precautionary handling wow. with all of the animals here at Wildlife Images. So we try to give you an immersive experience. In a perfect time you came out here, you'd have a chance to see all these animals up close and personal and take your picture with them and that sort of thing. And then get information from the people working with them. They should know them intimately and know all about their natural history and what's needed in the habitat and make you a better steward of the environment when you leave. Our objective is to involve, educate, and inspire, hopefully in that order. Oh, that's great, (laughs) that's great. What would you say is the most popular Thing when people come? Is there one thing that stands out where they say, wow, that's really amazing or, or what have you? Probably the grizzly bears. Yeah. You know, they're, they're big. Cody, our big uh, male, is uh, about a thousand pounds. 
So he leaves a lasting impression. You know, he's half the size of a Toyota when he comes out to you. He's a pretty good-sized critter. And then uh, the bald eagles. I think the bald eagles are always, or the golden eagles also a big hit with the people, but the bigger birds seem to leave a very big impression on them. We've got uh, Eurasian eagle owls. We have a couple, too. And, of course, they have these giant big orange eyes and everything. So they're pretty amazing looking, too. So, And nubs are badger. The badger, he's just got such an engaging personality. He's just a character. We've had him since he was a little guy the size of a potato <laughs> and raised him so he just loves people. And we can go sit in there in this compound that crawls up on our lap and just loves to be scratched. He's amazing. <laughs> That's incredible. Okay, let's take a break from that conversation. I wanted to bring up a question for you. During these crazy times, do you feel like your business is indestructible? Most people don't. And if not, the real question is why and what can you do to make it as indestructible as possible? Well, that's the basis of my new book, Nine Ways to Amazon Proof Your Business. Let me talk about what we discuss in the first chapter, determine focus. So one of the main ways that you can Amazon proof your business is by determining the focus of your business. And the real problem isn't that you're not doing enough. The real problem is, is that you may be doing too many things in too many places. So one of the things I suggest is decide whether your focus is going to be acquisition, ascension, or monetization. And I go into the details of what that means in this chapter. It's really the only three ways that you can grow your business. And if you just do that one step of determining focus, you can have a huge change in your entire business. But I also have eight other ways to Amazon-proof your business. Basically, the idea of making it competition-proof to even someone as big as Amazon.com. So if you'd like to get your hands on a free copy of my book, go to AmazonProofBook.com. Sign up and you will get a free copy and get the chance to purchase a physical copy of it for a special price. In addition to that, if you happen to be in the Josephine County area or nearby and you're looking to have a speaker come and discuss these type of issues with your organization, club, or group of friends, then I have a limited calendar that I may be able to fit you into. Go check out brianjpombo.com slash speaking and fill out the application. We'll be sure and get back to you on that. And now let's get back to our show. So what do you think is the most important part of what Wildlife Images does? Is there one thing that you could point to where you say that's really the most important? Connecting people to wildlife, I think, is the most important. People that can't relate to wildlife are going to be people that are going to be voters in the, the future and all that. That are going to determine the future of our wild areas. And if they don't care for wildlife or haven't experienced them or had that exposure, they probably will never vote or do anything actively to preserve the environment that we're in. And we want to change that. You know, I think it's critical. I fortunately was raised by a father that had deep respect for the environment and knew what a precious resource it was. You know, growing up in Burbank, you saw it go from this gorgeous area with condors to, you know, the charm of an armpit. It's just, yeah. uh, it's, it's just horrible, you know, <laughs> down there now. So he um, kind of ingrained that with me. So I think that's a wonderful thing to pass on. The animals that we save and rehabilitate, of course, are, are amazing. But whether they make a huge impact on the wild population is subject of a deeper conversation, perhaps. They probably don't make a significant change to the wild population. But the people that care about those animals will make big change in what's ahead of us. And the po human population keeps expanding exponentially. 
and unfortunately wild spaces have to be compressed at that same rate and so we're losing critical habitat at a horrendous rate. My father used to stated that we're, we're treating this world as if we're conducting a liquidation sale. <laughs> and, you know, the environment's not something we should be conducting a liquidation sale with. It's very, very sad. Mm. You had mentioned about you had to change how you handle certain animals because of the COVID situation. With COVID-19 and all the stuff that's been going on this year, how has that affected how you do business on a regular basis? Uh, quite a bit. I mean, we slow things down. Our capacity of our gift shop is not a very big, you know, central gift shop. So we only have the capacity of about six or seven people in there mm -hmm. at any given time. And even way, the way you interact with animals, because animals are, they sort of read your body language and your face and your expressions are part of that. Humans have got a very expressive face. And I think the animals, when you come in with a mask, all of a sudden they're not at ease. That's really uncomfortable. And animals, unlike humans, don't hesitate to discriminate. If they don't like somebody, they're going to make it clear. And it could be get ugly real fast. If they don't like you or you scare them or whatever, the reaction is to defend themselves. So working around them with a mask, with some of the big vultures I work with and eagles and things like that, they're really put off by the mask. So... I have to, before I go in with them, take off the mask and let them know that it's me and all that. And <laughs> it changes their demeanor greatly. How wild. So, yeah. And, um, you know, the, I've, most animals you work with, you can read their body language, sometimes not their facial expressions, but their body language. Um, you know, I've worked with some animals that you can't even read that very well. But like an eagle, I can tell what he's thinking, what he's feeling. I've been around him all my life, and I can't think of an eagle I didn't love. They're just amazing, amazing animals. And the bears, to a great degree, could do that. But I, when I worked with killer whales, you know, they don't have very expressive yeah. eyes. Yeah. And, you know, their facial expressions don't change. They pretty much look the same. <laughs> and you learn that, you know, read a little bit of their body language or what sort of motions they're making will tell you it's a good idea or not a good idea to go in with them today. Yeah. <laughs> That's something that I wouldn't ever have thought about, but that's really cool. You personally, what is the top thing that you enjoy most about being in this space and doing what you do? I like uh, being a visionary. I like thinking about if I had the resources, what we could make wildlife mm -hmm. images to be. You know, to, to push the boundaries of what people have done before. Almost every place you go to, there's barriers that are imposing and separate you from the wildlife. How do you dissolve those barriers and make it a safe environment for the humans and the animals and make that an immersive environment for everything you experience here at Wildlife Images? And if I had the resources, by Jove, I'd be pushing on that all the time because I think that's something that even the really good zoos, unfortunately, everybody is litigation happy now. Mm -hmm. So if anybody stubs their toe they're going to sue you mm -hmm. and so you have to make some things so ultra safe they're no longer engaging you can't really relate to the animal or whatever how can you break those barriers down for example i go to australia zoo terry and bindi and robert are one of our very yeah. very close friends and you spend time at the australia zoo and it's a beautiful example of a place that has done a great job of breaking those barriers down you get actually have a chance to see the animals one-on-one -on -one and don't have, you know, chain link and all this mm -hmm. uh, hot wire and everything in between the in most cases. But I don't think Australia is as litigation happy as we are here in the United States. And insurance companies and yeah. attorneys keep you on edge all the time worrying about anything. I remember when I was at the Oregon Zoo, we had somebody slip and fall because they stepped on a banana slug on a pathway and they sued the zoo. 
And so, uh, you know, what in the world are you supposed to do about that? You know, it's like, oh my gosh. So, yeah, that's, so that's, you run scared all the time, worried about somebody getting hurt or whatever and trying to sue you. That's kind of goes along with my next question, which is that if you had one thing you can change about the whole experience, what would it be? Would it be that or would it be something else? I think the one thing I would change would be breaking down the barriers for being able to have that immersive experience and the legal tangles mm-hmm. <laughs> that are part of those barriers too. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I really think um, I hearken back to the good old days when people were responsible for themselves and their mm-hmm. stupid actions. And when I was working in China and Japan, I worked a lot there consulting and working on programs. There'd be stairways, concrete stairways, two stories tall and no handrail or guardrail. And if you fall off the edge, you're stupid, yeah. you get hurt, you're out of luck. You know, yeah. it's your own problem. Um, you pay attention. And you know, the self-responsibility that's inherent in those societies mm. is refreshing. You think that people are responsible for themselves. I would like to see us kind of go back to that sort yeah. of thing uh, would be really nice. No, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. So if you and I were meeting a year from now, and let's say we got back together and I interviewed mm-hmm. you again or what have you, and we were to look back over the past 12 months at everything that had gone on, what would have had to have happened over that period of time for you to feel happy with your progress in both your life and wildlife images? Uh, we will have to have found a revenue source to keep the thing afloat. Yeah. I think that's it because it's a struggle. People donate, we get you know a meager grants and things like that. Sometimes there are states to leave us in their states and that saved our bacon several times. Mm-hmm. But my big dream would be to build an endowment. And if you have the place endowed in such a way that it will perpetuate its own income and pay for itself and you never have to touch the principal, that would be amazing, you know, because someday I'm looking down the road thinking I'd like to retire, but I don't want to do it before the place is on a firm financial footing. And um, that's my biggest struggle. We start to get there, then the economy goes to poop. And you start building again and then some other calamity. So it's um, been one of those things for the 24 years I've been here, I've been struggling trying to get an endowment started and keep it sustained. And what are the main obstacles standing in your way of getting there? Is it just what you're talking about, just just random things that that come along and get in the way, or is there anything specific between, if you can foresee between now and next year, what do you think would be the the main obstacle? I think finding that resource, finding, you know, who is it that has? Is it a company that wants a Mm -hmm. write-off? Is it an individual that's got enough uh, resources that they can set up the endowment for you? You know, finding that resource and convincing them that this would be a great place to put it is the biggest obstacle, I guess, because, you know, not everybody that comes in here has that sort of liquidity and could do those sort of yeah. things for you. So, yeah, if somebody happens to walk in with a, a great idea and a huge bank account, <laughs> oh, we can do some wonderful things with this place. Yeah, that's definitely a, a huge obstacle, but it's something that, that's worth going after. I mean, you've, you've been at it this long. I mean, I'm curious... It, being growing up in it and everything else, have you ever been drawn to doing anything other than this? Well, yeah, for a long time with my dad's film thing, I was going down the road as a cinematographer. Oh, okay. And I, I shot, sense. I was the uh, DP or director of photography for a feature motion picture, and I did that. And the next step was probably moving back to LA where that sort of thing happens and you can get a lot of jobs. And I kind of had to do some soul searching, I think, Okay, do I really want to do that and abandon, you know, helping dad with this thing yeah. and go back to the big city and all that? And 
it just wasn't in me. I yeah. just couldn't envision going back into that that environment and that pressure cooker and dealing with that. And you know, those times I look back and think, boy, it might have been neat, but all in all, I couldn't imagine letting this dream die. It's just yeah. there's no way I could live with myself doing it. And, you know, I had a very secure position at the zoo, and I made twice what I made here when I mm -hmm. came to work at Wildlife Images. And I had all the insurance and all the, you know, <laughs> PERS and all the the good stuff. And I had to give all that up to come down here. But, you know, I don't know that I could have lived with myself had I just said, no, I can't do it, Dad. It's going to go away. Yeah. I, I just couldn't have done that. Hmm. Wow. That's really amazing. What what could listeners do if they're interested in donating or finding out more about anything regarding wildlife images? Probably the quickest avenue is to log on to our website, which is wildlifeimages.org. And they can get all kinds of information. There's information on becoming a donor. We're always looking for people with volunteer, wants to volunteer. People that have skills, you know, whether it's a mechanic or it's somebody that does landscaping or wants to work with the animals. Um, we're looking for donations of any and all sorts of things. Where we got every one of our vehicles is looked like it came over on the Mayflower. They're just old <laughs> and tattered and all that. We need vehicles. We need. There's no end to the things we need. Food for the animals. Always. We got to buy a big freezer to put all our food in. We have one that's cobbled together from an old when they tore down the Kentucky Fried Chicken here in Grants oh, Pass. Wow. Um, long, long time ago on Sixth Street, we got the the freezer that was in there and. <laughs> We've been living on that for the last 20-some years, and it's about to breathe its last. So a big walk-in freezer there, because we get donations of roadkill deer and yeah. things like that, and we have to store our head so that we can feed all these critters. Yeah. Um, so there's no end to the needs here. There's just about anything you think of we can put to work for sure. Wow. Awesome. Well, hey, it's just a small peek into wildlife images and what you're doing and where you're going from here. And I really appreciate the time you spent with us, Dave. Well, I'm delighted to do it. But come back anytime. Yeah. Thanks for being on Grants Pass VIP. Wow, what an experience it was sitting down with Dave out at Wildlife Images. Wildlife Images is really a standard. It's a major institution in Southern Oregon. And I know in the world for what he does, but around here, it's very well known. And I was not aware of all of the history that went into Wildlife Images. It was such a great conversation with Dave and so interesting to learn everything that's behind it and where they can take it from here. There's so many different options available, even though there's so many limitations also with the current time period we're living through. Look at how they've been able to survive. It's also a good thing to look at how does a nonprofit function differently than your typical profitable business? What are the elements that you have to deal with? And so if you're looking to start a new business or start a new project, it's always good to step back and look at all the options on the table and what is really your best bet in the long run in terms of how you structure your business. Because even though it's a nonprofit, it's still a business to some extent. It has a purpose that is meaningful to the people that own and run it. And Dave, you could tell it's in his blood <laughs> to be able to make a difference in the world. And so inspirational meeting him. I can't wait to see what uh, Wildlife Images does in the future. Join us again on the next Grants Pass VIP, brought to you by the team at brianjpombo.com. Helping movers and shakers in Southern Oregon and beyond stand out. That's B-R-I-A-N-J-P-O-M-B-O.com.
If you or someone you know would like to be a guest or a sponsor on Grants Pass VIP, go to grantspassvip.com forward slash contact. Guests who appear on the show do not necessarily endorse the opinions of the host or sponsors. The theme music is Fun Shot by Kevin McLeod. Our host is a Grants Pass resident and business strategist, Brian Pombo. I'm executive producer, Shawnee Douglas. Until next time, live rogue, have fun.